Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Morning shot. A very good morning to you. This is Morning Shot, and I'm Lin Lee. China's President Xi Jinping's no-show at the G20 summit over the weekend has brought about a lot of talk as the top leader of the world's second-largest economy has never missed a G20 summit since taking power in 2012. Meanwhile, leaders of the United States and China squared off on the South China Sea issue at the recent ASEAN summit, where host Indonesia urged both counterparts to maintain peace and avoid conflicts. This comes amid heightened tensions ahead of these key summits after Chinese release of a new map riled the region with collective concern over its claims over the disputed South China Sea, as well as land areas contested by India and Russia. For a deeper analysis, we are joined by Ross Feingold, Director of Business Development at SafePro Group. Welcome to the show, Ross. Good morning. Glad to be back. Let's first talk about China's really new contentious map, which revives the use of a 10-dash line. You know, as if the 9-dash line wasn't enough, now they've come up with the 10-dash line map. So in short, additional dash to the east of Taiwan, breaking from the usual 9-dash line Beijing has been using in recent years. It also overlaps territory now with other countries like India, Malaysia, and even Russia, its ally. What do you make of the timing of its release? And how much bite really does such a map have? I wouldn't make, uh, put too much emphasis on the timing. I mean, every once in a while, China's government agencies update these maps. Uh, you know, we could have a lot of fun speculating whether it was time to coincide with the G20 or the East Asia Summit. Premier Li Chiang at these events seemed to be trying to be the, the good cop, putting a good face forward of, of who China is. We want to work with everyone, saying positive things. But then nearly simultaneously, we have this map release that angers people. Uh, angers the public and some of the countries with competing claims in the South China Sea. Obviously, adding a dash to the east of Taiwan doesn't go down very well here in Taiwan, where I'm sitting either. Uh, But sooner or later, they're going to update these maps and they're going to try to reflect the sovereignty claims that China has, which are already well known. So I wouldn't put too much emphasis on these maps, although it does sort of get the media and the pundits talking. but, but uh, you know, again, it, it was coinciding with the G20 and Xi Jinping, as you discussed, wasn't there. So that sort of added to a lot of the speculation. Well, certainly in the South China Sea, where, where China has control of several islands and uh, has been well documented, has militarized some of the islands, a map that reflects what, what is now a reality, that's not really a surprise. Uh, when it comes to Russia, they they have a treaty with Russia uh, over over or an agreement over the border areas that was reached many years ago. So that part is a bit odd. The, mm-hmm. the border with India that's in dispute, and we know uh, from recent years' events that uh, periodically there, there's more than fisticuffs. You know, they actually start throwing rocks at each other, and China tries to build a highway, or India tries to build a highway, and the other side says. You know, you're you're going across what what we consider the de facto border, mm-hmm. uh, but both sides have not you know, they're not acknowledging the other side's claim, and it's an area in dispute. So again, sooner or later, uh, you know, different maps are produced. The public gets angry. Governments issue statements, and we just keep going through the cycle. Mm-hmm. The important thing, and and let's keep our fingers crossed, is that these don't turn into shooting wars. So during the ASEAN summit, Chinese Premier Li Qiang said that uh, major powers must keep their differences under control and avoid a new Cold War. What is your assessment of China's stance going into that high-level meeting? 
Well, certainly China likes to use this phrase that, that the West, led by the United States, is a Cold War mentality. So we constantly hear, hear that from the spokespeople or government officials from China. An interesting thing about that, although the United States or Western Europe might deny that, they might say, oh, no, 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 we're not, we don't have a Cold War mentality. This is not the U.S. or the West versus USSR like 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, but I do think when China says that, it's a phrase that actually has some residents partially in ASEAN and certainly with the global south, which was kind of a battleground uh, between the USSR and the West during the Cold War. So when China says it's a Cold War mentality, it's Cold War tactics, it's us against them, I actually think that, that it kind of works with certain governments in the developing world. And China knows this. So they're going to continue to say it. They're going to continue to say you know, we have a model for doing business with you. We, we're, we're willing to invest. We're not going to comment on your internal affairs. And we know mm. that that's just not the same model that the Western countries use. Okay, the South China Sea issue, one of the major flashpoints in Asia, has been simmering for years and we're still not seeing much progress there. What must give way in order for countries involved to take the issue forward? It's it's a, such a difficult one. So 2002, there was the declaration on the conduct by the ASEAN countries in China. And now it's over 20 years that they still haven't formalized that in, into a code of conduct. A couple of months ago, it was only in July that China and ASEAN announced that they were going to come up with guidelines to actually bring that negotiation forward. So old issue, it hasn't gone away. It's not going to go away. I would be optimistic in the sense that uh, ASEAN and China will probably reach agreement on some kind of code of conduct. But is it going to be a document that really resolves the competing sovereignty claims? Absolutely not. There might be some something in there that leads the countries in, in ASEAN and China to do some joint exploration of the natural resources. It will probably have something about ongoing talks and negotiations, keep the dialogue open between ASEAN countries or the competing claimants and China. Uh, but again, I don't think it's ever going to resolve the sovereignty claims. And we, again, we have to be frank. When it comes to the competing sovereignty claims, China is in a good position because it is occupying a number of islands that it claims to have sovereignty over. And it doesn't look likely that the other competing claimants are going to use military force to eject China. Another hot button issue is the U.S.-China rivalry, of course. In your opinion, was China President Xi Jinping's absence at the G20 summit a mistake? Or is it more about how it is uh, trying to align with certain parties? It's easy for us, you know, looking at it either at the time or now that it's a few days later to say, oh, well, it was you know, what, a, what a loss for China that Xi Jinping wasn't mm -hmm. there. Sometimes I think uh, they're sitting around in, in, in the leadership compound in Beijing thinking, hey, how about we don't go to G20? And then we see the crazy reaction from all the talking heads and all the media and all the other government officials. Look, U.S. officials, uh, U.S. leaders are sometimes absent from some of these meetings as well. And, and you know, Biden only attending some of the meetings, but not all the meetings last week. That got a lot of people talking. And, and it's not the first time that a U.S. president has been absent, mm -hmm. whether it's from the U.S. ASEAN or East Asia Summit. Uh, so I, I wouldn't read too much into that. Mm -hmm. it, again, it causes a lot of speculation. You know, there are these stories floating around on the Internet about what might have been the, the justification or the mm -hmm. motivation for not going. Uh, but I, I think pretty quickly we're going to see return to foreign leaders or secretaries or, or ministers visiting Beijing. And some of them will score meetings with Xi Jinping and mm -hmm. some of them won't. And we'll be trying to analyze what it means for those countries' bilateral relations with China. Uh, 
Uh, but ultimately, the G20, uh, I'm a bit of a skeptic on the G20 any, anyway. So you know, what did it achieve at this meeting? I mean, a bunch of nice statements. Uh, and then, but, but the major statement kind of went soft on Russia. And, and uh, you know, mm, that, that's right. the first to speak out about that was Ukraine. And who said, you know, what's up with that? So very interestingly, U.S. President Joe Biden, too, uh, skipped the ASEAN summit and instead sending his number two vice president, Kamala Harris, Harris, sorry. But on Sunday, Biden visited Vietnam. What kind of message do you think that sent to the uh, ASEAN nations? The United States has been trying very hard to bring Vietnam into grouping of countries that are being tough on China, led by the United States, periodically joined by Western Europe, often joined by Japan and, and more recently Australia. Uh, so that, that's been a, a work in progress for the United States government. And while he was in Vietnam, uh, a long list of, of joint projects was announced with, between the United States and Vietnam. Mo- most of them uh, were in the tech space, uh, mm-hmm. trying to help Vietnam uh, develop its technology industry, kind of be, a, you know, Vietnam's already a place where companies in traditional industry manufacturing could relocate. If they want to de-risk or decouple from China, you know, there's Malaysia, there's Thailand, there's Indonesia, and increasingly there's Vietnam as well. But a lot of what was announced had to do with the tech sector and trying to develop a semiconductor and other technology industry in Vietnam. Uh, there was hope that there'd be more talk or, or more in the joint statements about security cooperation. That was kind of missing. But look, Vietnam, uh, because of the legacy of the war, and being colonized. I think there's a ceiling in what they want to do in a security relationship with the United States. They're always going to maintain their traditional relationship with the former Soviet Union, now Russia. Uh, There's even talk that Xi Jinping is supposed to visit Vietnam later this year. Mm. We we shouldn't forget that these are fraternal communist countries, even though they have their own tensions and they have their competing sovereignty claims in the South China Sea. Again, Vietnam is just uh, inherently a different political system from the United States and the West. There's human rights problems, and Biden got some criticism for going soft on that. He didn't really bring it up. So I think people in the United States, when they hope for Vietnam to be part of an anti-China alliance, I think they need a dose of reality that Vietnam is always going to do its own thing. I think there's an upper limit to what they want to do with the United States, especially when it comes to security issues. But hey, in the interim, they'll be happy to take American money when the United States president comes and say, I'm going to shower you with hundreds of millions of dollars to help your tax sector or for microfinance to help small enterprises or help enterprises led by women, English language and other types of education programs. Yeah, Vietnam will say, sure, we'll take your money. Ross, I want to circle back to things between U.S. and China. So what's your analysis of how deep rooted that rivalry really is? I'd have to be pessimistic in the sense that uh, there's so many issues on the agenda. So you you use the word rivalry. Yes, they're rivals for the affections of countries around the world. And again, I mentioned the global south earlier, Africa. We saw the African Union was invited into the G20 and and whether that's going to help U.S. influence or China's influence in the G20, that remains to be seen. Uh, but but the, beyond just being a rival, say, for commercial purposes, uh, for inbound investment, for using Huawei or not using Huawei, the agenda items are, are so voluminous at this point. So whether that's trade issues, religious freedom issues, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Tibet, Xinjiang, I mean, the list is so long. Uh, that, I, again, I, I'm pessimistic about you know, any kind of uh, substantive progress on these many, many issues. So you know, they're not just going to continue to be rivals, but I think we're, we have to be realistic and say that there's going to continue to be sniping back and forth. But let's hope, again, the 
sniping doesn't become real sniping with, with a shooting war. Uh, but I, I'm pessimistic on all these issues. I mean, there's just really little room for agreement when it comes to many of these issues. And the list just keeps growing about those those issues that divide China and the United States. So with this, these two superpowers going at it, which region do you think could perhaps benefit from this, keeping in mind that China has hailed the historic BRICS expansion as well? Certainly ASEAN stands to benefit from the perspective of, you know, we were talking a few minutes ago, multinational companies moving manufacturing out of China. That's clearly a trend. Uh, and they're moving to some of the ASEAN countries. India has benefited, of course, from that as well. Another country that, that has benefited from that recently is Mexico. It, it's, it's obviously uh, has a geographical advantage that's next to the major market of the United States. You know, it has some downsides. You know, violence, public safety is always a concern in Mexico. Mm-hmm. But it does have a history of of being a, a place where uh, manufacturing can take place for exports to the United States. And that, that often that's, that's sending components and just doing the finishing, you know, the final leg of a manufacturing process could be done in Mexico. Uh, so I think they'll continue to benefit as well. Then when it comes to uh, you know, African countries or the Middle East, they benefit as well because, as I said, the United States and China are competing for those countries' affections as well. And we also saw this, this infrastructure project that President Biden uh, was pushing, you know, how long that will take to actually be implemented. You know, it could be decades, uh, but we'll see what, what kind of progress is made building the, this uh, rail that's supposed to go from the Middle East all the way to India. And, and that'll be competing with the rail network that China had built going across Central Asia towards uh, Eastern, Central and Western Europe. All right. Thanks, Ross. As always, great to have your perspectives on our show. Thanks for all your time today. Thank you. We've been speaking with Ross Feingold, Director of Business Development at SafePro Group. Stay with Money FM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A W E D I O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.